Hello, this is the Past and Pending Podcast. I am your host, Adam Sexton, and I have another solo episode for you, diving yet again to talking about films from my past. And since we're midway through the summer season, as of right now, as I'm recording this, it's August the 1st, so I guess we're a little bit more than midway. I wanted to talk about summer blockbuster films for this episode, and I'm going to keep it to five entries. My personal favorites, just so I don't ramble on forever. And a lot of these choices came from my youth, as early as the age of either 8 or 9, all the way up to age 19. And all of them occurred in the main theater of Batesville uh, at different time periods, for reasons I'll later explain. Some of the, A few of these were family outings, and a couple of them were solo outings, for a reason I will later explain. And while it's uh, almost impossible to escape hearing about box office performance, which I don't understand why anyone pays attention to that stuff, the lure of summer movie spectacle takes hold of the public each year, and a good portion of it can be dependable entertainment, an even greater portion of it can just be detestable, disposable trash, but there's always that seemingly smaller yet very irresistible portion that can surprise you and hold on to you as the year ends or as each year passes and it ends up becoming a great favorite not no not necessarily to be considered as a summer blockbuster despite the fact that i'm talking about that right now i didn't choose the biggest money making titles but these were all very astronomically successful but they also all happen to be great sources of entertainment for me so and i'm for a lot of people as well so let us begin as i start off talking about the first selection which is face off from 1997 i've been uh, chasing this guy ever since i joined the force he he has no conscience and he uh, he shows no no remorse he's the mastermind behind numerous bombings and political assassinations. He uh, has a felony list a mile long, murder, arson, kidnapping, terrorism, you name it. He's the most dangerous and brilliant criminal mind I've ever known. I, for years, I've, I've been watching him, tracking him, studying his every every move. I know his every, every mannerism, facial tick, gesture. I know him better than he knows himself. And now, after all this time, I finally figured out a way to trap him. I will become him. care if I live. You're not having any fun, are you, Sean? Try terrorism for hire. We'll blow some stuff up. It's more fun. Plan B. Let's just kill each other. The summer of 1997 
was a big year for me, movie-wise. Some great stuff was on the way, especially in the second half of the year. But this summer was notable for the first time that I started sneaking into R-rated films at the local Cineplex. In uh, 1996, the Carmike's Oak 7 Cineplex opened in Batesville around the early fall period, if memory serves me correct. It was like a miracle, as Batesville had been without a functional theater since the Melba Theater in the downtown section had closed down a few years earlier. And while I didn't show up on the first day, my brother and I made sure that we would be there for the opening uh, weekend of Star Trek First Contact. Uh, I come from a family of Trekkies. We enjoyed the movie, and we also really enjoyed the trailer for the special editions of the Star Wars trilogy. And look, I know what you're thinking, I know what you'd like to say, but that was an awesome experience. They weren't as horribly messed with back then, alright? So, moving on. It felt like a relief that there would be a place to go see a movie for once, instead of driving nearly an hour or more for a theater in Searcy or Jonesboro, although my family has done that a fair share of times. And the films for the rest of the of late 1996 didn't interest me as much, so I didn't visit it that much. But the year of 1997? Another story entirely. So there were movies like Jackie Chan's First Strike, the, uh, the Star Wars Special Editions that I mentioned before, uh, Dante's Peak, The Saint, uh, Anaconda, The Fifth Element, and The Lost World Jurassic Park. Not all of these are good movies, but I wanted to illustrate that I was going to the Oak 7 more regularly in 1997. And that was just for the first part of the year. Also, the average rating for all these choices were PG-13, so I was a good little boy, not sneaking into the different screening rooms. And besides, most of the R-rated selections from the first chunk of the year didn't always reach the Oak 7. They characteristic that usually just drove me nuts about the theater as the years went on. So come summertime, and the spectacles are almost upon us. And some of those are R-rated, and I felt kind of down, but kind of silly that I couldn't see some of them since I was so sure that the theater staff wouldn't let me in, even if I bluffed about my age. And while I don't think too highly about the movie Con Air, for example, at that point, I wanted to see it. You know, I was sucking into the mid-1990s Jerry Bruckheimer machine after the good impression that Bad Boys and The Rock left on me upon watching them at home. And I wouldn't turn 17 until September, and it's June when the movie comes out, and I would really like to see Con Air. I still can't believe I wanted to back then. But I eventually got the, you know, the, the brass balls to try and bluff my way for a ticket, you know, just ask for a ticket and hope they didn't ask for ID. But the funny thing is the inspiration to do that didn't come from like this swelling of courage as the release day approached. It came from my mom, who just simply stated, look, just try asking for it. Try asking for a ticket. What's the worst that can happen? And, you know, I kind of like how my mom didn't mind me lying for a ticket for a big, dumb, rude, and crude action film that she want nothing to do with, but hey, that's how it happened. And her advice made sense to me, so on the Friday that Con Air was available, I went up to the pop, uh, to the box office, asked for one ticket, and boom, got one. No request for ID, nothing. Just give us your money and be on your way. And wow, it actually worked. Lying is kind of awesome sometimes.
and I wouldn't turn 17 until September, like I said before, and here I am, the start of June. I'm sneaking into stuff like Con Air, and I wouldn't be carded until November when Starship Troopers came out. Now, while I'm not, like I said, like I'm not a big fan of Con Air, but seeing it did give me a taste to try for an R-rated film uh, as much as possible until the age of 17, and of course that didn't really go as planned because I think the only one that I saw between then and my birthday was Air Force One, which was a family event with my mom and my sister because, you know, Harrison Ford killing Russian bad guys makes for a good family uh, event. But there was one R-rated film that I couldn't possibly have been more excited about and so eager for and so hungry for whatever I could read about it in issues of Entertainment Weekly or Rolling Stone and in a year that contained LA Confidential and Titanic and Boogie Nights and Gross Point Blake and Starship Troopers and As Good As It Gets and Jackie Brown, nothing slapped me sillier with glee than John Woo's face-off. And also, before the film was released, I was very aware of John Woo, particularly his Hong Kong films. I remember, and I've talked about this on the uh, podcast before, how I woke up one Saturday morning at 6am to record a dubbed version of uh, Hard Boiled on Cinemax. And my VHS copy of that became Heavy Rotation. And uh, I've mentioned in the also in the podcast how I regularly watched uh, Coming Attractions, which was on E! Entertainment uh, channel. And uh, I would record the trailers and eventually I got one for Face Off, and they had like two of them, which had that famous moment where the camera's circling around John Travolta's face as he talks about Caster Troy, and his his uh, hands go over his face and uh, his hair, and it kind of morphs into Nicolas Cage's face. And there was the second trailer that had that moment, but also you had like this little montage of clips from the film, and it just looked absolutely badass. Because the Oak 7 showtimes weren't posted until the Friday's edition of the Baseful Guard, and because the theater opened at noon, and because the internet wasn't as commonplace and available as it is now, the only way to know if a certain film was playing was to call the theater's number, where you could contact management, or most likely hear the showtime listings. I never tried this before, so I had no idea when the new showtimes would be posted, so... I did the only thing I could think of. Stay up all night and call every 30 minutes until a listing for face-off was provided. If no listing was provided, I most likely would have had a uh, psychotic episode or something. I don't know. I did this from after midnight until 6 a.m., calling every 30 minutes. And it was a truly obnoxious thing to do, but damn it, I had to know. After all that mess... I finally went to bed satisfied. I think I finally got a notification for face-off around 6, 6.30. 6.30, I believe, was the time where the showtime list updated. And I knew uh, going to bed, I was I was very tired but very excited. And I was uh, my fears were put to rest. I knew not only that face-off would be playing later that day... I knew when to call the theater's answering machine to get to new showtimes every weekend. And so again, pumped for this, and again, I uh, I saw the movie three times. And it has moments of self-indulgence, and it's over long, at, you know, two and a half hours, and it takes a leap 
of uh, it takes a suspension of disbelief and also a leap of faith, I guess, for its more sci-fi elements. The the movie was previously supposed to be like a sci-fi tale, but it was just brilliantly acted and directed and just beautiful to look at. And it ingeniously took this tried and true theme from Wu's past work. You know, the dual the, the duality of a cop and a criminal, or two men on opposite sides of the law, or some kind of morality and pushed it further with these fantastic performances by Nicolas Cage and John Travolta, and it had great supporting work from Joan Allen and Gina Gershon and Nick Cassavetes, and yes, admittedly, while it's kind of creepy to leer at Dominic Swain in her undies now, back then at the age of 16, coming on 17, perfectly okay for me. Anyway, uh, it was still kind of (laughs) creepy. I was a teenager, what the hell do you want from me? The plot uh, utilized some weird-ass sci-fi elements, and like most John Woo films, it just wipes boogers on the physical universe that we occupy. But it was thrilling and emotional and funny, and this was important, very sincere. And by the end of it, it felt like I was just put through this emotional ringer. It was like the mono mono for all time in its time. The action scenes were amazing, and I always appreciated how they served the story and the characters. The shootout at the airport, the raid on Caster Troy's hideout, the prison break, and the final showdown at a church, which escalated to a boat chase, and then to some final hand-to-hand combat. And that last showdown almost just threatens to overstay its welcome. I I can remember taking my best friend to see it. This was like my third third outing to it. And (laughs) during that third act, during that last action scene, he was like, man, when is he going to kill this guy? But, uh, it still works. And my feeling is that John Woo, having very hard times with the Hollywood system with his previous efforts, uh, Hard Target and Broken Arrow, finally had this chance and this budget to accommodate his, uh, you know, his, uh, action scene fantasies or what he always wanted to do. And he just went, you know, go for broke. Like he'd never have that chance again. And I smiled at how much he and his crew just managed to get away with. The stunt crew looked like they were just killing themselves. It would it would never be this good for John Woo in the U.S. again. And so with Face Off done, let's go to the next one, which is The Matrix from 1999. you were so sure was real what if you were unable to wake from that dream how would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world what is happening to me the answer is out there neo it's the question that drives us what is the matrix The Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? They're watching you, Neo. Human beings are a disease. You are a cancer of this planet. And we are the cure. Get me the hell out of here! 
Welcome to the real world. So you're here to save the world. So what do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. No one has ever done anything like this. That's why it's going to work. Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy. Because Kansas is going bye-bye. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Within the last two years of high school, I fell prey to a magazine subscription service that was being offered throughout the student body. And I don't recall how I got involved or what it had to do with school. Maybe the proceeds were benefiting a school program or something. I don't remember. But all I can remember is that I immediately bought subscriptions to both Entertainment Weekly and Rolling Stone. And I kept both subscriptions active through the almost to the end of college. And to this day, I still subscribe to Entertainment Weekly, although technically it's the digital version. But hey, I don't want all those fiscal copies cluttering up the, the apartment. So the reason that I bring up Entertainment Weekly is that in an early issue of 1999, they usually have like these previews of releases depending on the season. Spring releases, summer releases, fall releases, and uh, so on. Uh, The spring releases for 1999 was the cover story of that issue, and this was the first time that I have ever heard of The Matrix. There was this one paragraph description with uh, allusions to sci-fi, kung fu, and the photo was of Lawrence Fishburne jumping out of the side of a, sci- of a skyscraper. And it sounded interesting, but since I knew nothing about the directors aside from Bound, I kind of didn't pay it that much attention. And then into mid to late February, I went to the Oak 7 Cinema to see Payback, which was another adaptation of Donald E. Westlake's The Hunter, starring Mel Gibson and directed by Brian Hegeland. Helgeland, or however you pronounce his last name. Sorry about that. I was very taken by the trailer for Payback, which had Gibson being bad, shooting people, snarling at them, to all to the merry tune of Ain't That a Kick in the Head by Dean Martin. I liked the film alright, but later on I got to see the director's cut, and it's leaner, and it's meaner, and it brings out the promise of rooting for the bad guy more than the, the uh, theatrical cut. But, Seeing this film at Oak 7 is how I first saw the trailer for The Matrix, and it was the craziest thing I have ever seen, and it was just one hell of a promotional item, and not since the taser for Fight Club, which I saw at the for as a trailer for The Phantom Menace uh, when I saw that movie, which is weird. Not since the teaser for Fight Club had I so badly wanted to see a movie just simply based on the trailer. 
and out of all the films that I'm talking about, The Matrix is the only one that can be considered like this sleeper hit. I mean, especially in retrospect. The Wachowskis had only like one directed film under their belt and a handful of uh, screen uh, screenwriting gigs. And they had managed to team up with Joel Silver... And for around a budget of $63 million, they conjured up this melting pot of sci-fi and gunplay and martial arts and this post-apocalyptic scenario and you got philosophy into just this one of the coolest movies ever made. And while feelings about the sequels to this day is still divided, and by the way, I count myself as a lover of those, no one can really just deny the power and the surprise and the zeitgeist capturing momentum of that first movie and with this modest budget the production values made it look twice the budget and while some will point out that the slow-mo bullet play is lifted from john woo and that the idea of an artificial reality used to enslave humanity mirrors that of dark city um the execution was truly original and it was just beautifully wrought it, it was an action film with brains that utilized philosophical themes to make sense of living in this scenario if if you're living in a dream world how would you know and if you knew would you try to wake up and could you in fact be comfortable with the dream world it was this engaging take on the hero's journey while never losing focus on how neo needs his allies to solve all of their problems uh morpheus played by Lawrence fishburne had the charisma and the presence to guide not only neo but us the audience through the rabbit hole establishing the rules as he went along or uh, shall we say what he knew about the rules and the matrix and trinity played by carrie ann moss wasn't regulated to damsel in distress mode but a very capable resourceful heroine and Hugo Weaving made his mark with uh, American audiences, I would assume, as the scary yet charming Agent Smith. And his scenes with Fishburne during uh, Morpheus's interrogation slash torture scene are just absolutely fantastic. And this movie came out near the end of my senior year in high school, and I was talking to friends about it. Our computer lab had internet access back when that was a big thing, and when I was done with whatever coursework was required... I would visit the official website. Internet speeds being what they were back then, it took forever for anything to load up, but I was undeterred. I didn't I didn't know about message boards back then. I wasn't familiar enough with navigating through websites to search for film review uh, websites. I didn't I didn't even consider searching for Roger Ebert or the Chicago Sun Times website, even though by that time I was a big fan of Ebert's. You know, tuning in whenever I could to the Siskel and Ebert show and having bought a few of Ebert's annual movie review books by then. The official website didn't spoil so much, so when I uh, went into the film, I went into it fairly cold. And as a result, I swallowed that red pill with glee. Three times, in fact. Since the beginning of time, man has searched the earth for evidence of its past. But while some have looked for clues to the mystery, one man has found the way to bring the mystery back to life. I own an island off the coast of Costa Rica, and I spent the last five years setting up a kind of biological preserve here on this private island. Science has defied evolution. Where do you get a hundred million year old dinosaur? 
cancer, but... Genetics has mastered creations. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. And extinction... is a thing of the past. Welcome to Jurassic Park. None of these attractions are ready yet, of course, but the park will open with the basic tour you're about to take. Hey, look at this. You see something? Dinosaurs and man. Two species separated by 65 million years of evolution just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea? You feel that? close to turning 13 when Jurassic Park was released in early June of 1993. I grew up loving dinosaurs, the Triceratops being my favorite, but I was quickly approaching that age or stage in my life when I was abandoning toys and getting more into books or into a new brand of toys, you know, video games. In anticipation uh, of the film coming out, I had bought a copy of Michael Crichton's novel of the same name and just dug right through it. Uh, a lot of techno babble and gobbledygook, but for the basic idea was understood. A billionaire and his team of scientists had cracked a way to create dinosaurs from extracting dino DNA from mosquitoes trapped in amber over time. They're grown. And the billionaire, John Hammond, decides that a theme park should be created so that these animals can be shared with uh, the world. He brings some experts in related fields, a married uh, paleontologist and a paleobotanist as, and a mathematician, to be guests in a dry run through the park with the nephew and niece of Hammond and as well as a lawyer. Of course, things don't work out as planned and all hell breaks loose. While I was big on Spielberg films back then, and I still am, I had uh, no idea how the FX were going to look. I didn't. I don't recall seeing a whole lot of ads or TV spots for the movies in you know leading up to the film's release, and I just kept thinking, how would they pull this off? My entire family went to the Melba Theater in downtown Batesville to see it, and uh, the Melba Theater in the 80s and early 90s was the 
big, uh, was really the only theater to go to in Batesville. It was the closest to where my uh, parents lived at the time, uh, which is why I'm discussing, I was discussing the Oak 7 Cinema in the earlier entries, and uh, for the remainder of this episode, I'll be talking about films that I've seen at the Melba Theater, and uh, it's just, uh, it was just this great, great place to go see movies, and uh, it had a lot of history with it, and over the years, it's since been reopened and then closed down. They tried to make it work as like a second-run theater. They were even show, showing older movies for a time, but then that closed down because just poor maintenance, poor financial handling of the of the theater. And I read in a uh, in a newspaper article that they are planning to renovate and reopen it. And I really do hope that uh, everything works out well for them. Uh, anyway, uh, Jurassic Park was a family outing, and uh, I got to see, I got to bring bring along one of my best friends, let's just call him Brad, and uh, we were all just dropping jaws along with, uh, along with Sam Neill and Laura Dern when you see that first Brachiosaurus. You had that wide panning shot of that behemoth combined with that majestic John Williams theme and instilled the wonder that only Spielberg uh, could make. The making of the dinosaurs seemed hokey to me even then, but while I was under this film spell, I, I, I didn't care, and it proved to be terrifying as it was, you know, wondrous. I, I've always heard about how the opening shot of Star Wars was just this mind-blowing moment for those who saw it back then. And of course, I wasn't born until 1980, and I couldn't share in that. But for me, I guess the equivalent would have to be that initial scene with the uh, Brachiosaurus. Or uh, it can be that T-Rex attack scene. And the build-up to that scene was just nuts. Uh, You had, you know, that rainfall the thunder, the interplay between the kids and the lawyer in one Jeep versus that of Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum in the other Jeep. And you knew that Wayne Knight's character had sabotaged the security system for the park just in time for the Jeeps to be right at the T-Rex's predic. And the rain was just pouring down, and the lawyer had uh, started to freak out, and he ran out to the nearby restroom, leaving the kids stranding in the Jeep. And we find out that the goat that had been previously uh, set out to lure the T-Rex had just been eaten. And like like one of its limbs just come crashing at one of the Jeep. And then you see the T-Rex's claws brush along the malfunctioning electric wires which soon snap off. And then behold, the T-Rex enters the frame and uh, your pants have pretty much just met shit at that point. And Sam Neill reminds us in Goldblum to remain silent as they're in their car, you know, as the dinosaur's visual acuity is based on movement. But then one of the kids turns on a flashlight, waves it around in the panic, and Sam Neill just says, you know, turn off the light, turn off the light, turn off the light, and then the situation just goes from bad to worse. And I can remember jumping along with uh, my friend and my family when the jaw crashed through the 
the sky roof with the glass separating the jaws from the kids and I can remember the jeep being flipped over and Sam Neill heroically saving the girl while little Timmy was trapped inside the jeep everyone remembers the comedy and the sudden terror of the lawyer being discovered on the uh, toilet and immediately eaten and since the lawyer was repulsive I mean no one really shed any tears for him but Sam Neill and the girl have to grab one of the wires and descend off the cliff while the T-Rex is pushing the Jeep over the side of the cliff directly above them. And I can remember like that near miss as the Jeep falls past them as they're trying to swing from side to side. And it just falls right into a tree, which is shocking because I kept remembering, hey, there's a freaking kid still inside the Jeep. Uh, my best friend during that sequence is just as freaked out as I was and Brad (laughs) he had his arms around me like I was his freaking date and I was kind of taken out of the moment by that but I mean hey I don't I don't really blame him that was a very scary but spectacular sequence and the usage of both animatronics and CGI felt very seamless even when you can tell which was which I mean it really didn't matter and others have pointed this out since the film's release, but, you know, geographically, that scene is a bit of a mess. I mean, why did the Jeeps end up at the T-Rex cage when they had passed it before earlier? What, did they go backwards? And where did the cliff with the, like, 100-foot drop come from? But, hey, it doesn't matter. Spielberg and his crew are magicians, and they were distracting you with this so you you wouldn't think about that and it still works to this very day i believed i was seeing dinosaurs and it also made me a fan of michael Crichton, and i read more of his books as a result uh as i grew older and i can remember later on that year when there was an advertisement for Jurassic Park's home video release, and I've never seen anything like it before or since. It was an announcement that, due to the film's ongoing box office success, the home video release date had been pushed to, like, the next year. And I was disappointed, but um, I understood. Jurassic Park was a monster. Raiders of the Lost Ark came out the year of my birth and Temple of Doom when I was four, so I missed out on seeing those films when they originally came out, but Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, it came out at just the right time in 1989. By that point, 
I had seen the previous film several times on home video, and I loved both of them. And I was psyched by the behind-the-scenes trailer. Mostly, it focused on the making of the ta- of the tank chase battle in the film's third act. But the fact that Sean Connery was joining the cast as Henry Jones Sr. was a pretty kick-ass moment for me and the family. And John Reese davis was returning as Sala, as well as Denholm Elliott as Marcus Brody. And again, just like in Jurassic Park, my entire family was at the Melba Theater, and one of our neighbors had brought their family as well. And looking back, were it not for a few recycled elements of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, you had Nazis again, but now they were more incompetent. You know, despite its poor taste in, you know, treating Marcus Brody as this big comic relief, and you had a weak villain in Julian Glover... I mean, I'd almost rank this kind of higher than Temple of Doom, almost. Temple of Doom excels so well in its bizarre approach and in its desire to go in opposite direction than Raiders that it's just still a stellar film and therefore the best possible follow-up to Raiders of the Lost Ark. The thing is, the father-son dynamic is so strong and how the Grail ties into the narrative works so well that the film's strengths tower over its weaknesses and the relationship between the father and son indicate why Indy matured as he did and how he approaches archaeology in contrast to his father's approach and their strained relationship brought up some resentments but also the mutual respect that had been lost and when Senior gets Junior to stop reaching for the Holy Grail by simply calling them Indiana it was just such a beautiful moment the son had saved the father, and the father the son. Back in the last, uh, back in the late '80s, an Indiana Jones fan like myself kept wondering if there'd be another film. And the wait was in the was only like four or five years, but hey, the clock was ticking, and I found myself in heaven. And I also found out, unfortunately, that I wasn't a gore hound. That moment in the the final showdown when Julian Glover's character drinks from the wrong grail and his face starts melting off and decaying and just aging really fast I freaked out I just I was sitting right next to my brother and his friend and I just ran out right of my seat and I managed to find where my mother was sitting along with my dad and the neighbor's uh, parents and just ran right into the seat where she was, kind of looking for comfort. Uh, hey, I couldn't help myself, man. That freaked me out. Uh, there's a reason that I just did not go for gore or really intense moments of violence, and I'll get into that with my next solo episode as I'll be discussing horror films. But uh, I'll never forget that moment. And that last shot of them running into the sunset uh, was perfection. And... I agree the series should have ended here. Now, right now, since Lucasfilm is in different hands, they're obviously, at some particular point, they're going to resurrect this franchise, and I know some people just think that it's somewhat blasphemous to uh, cast someone besides Harrison Ford, but Harrison Ford isn't going to be around forever. He's too old, and you don't purchase... Lucasfilm unless you're going to make use of all the assets that come along with it so uh, 
I give them the best of luck as to how they're going to continue the series on. And in terms of who would have made a good Indiana Jones, if if River Phoenix was still alive, I think he would be a perfect choice for it. Not because he played the young Indiana Jones, not because it would have helped for continuity's sake, but... River Phoenix uh, was known to be an actor who learned by observation and by working with other people when he was younger and he worked with Harrison Ford on the Mosquito Coast. He uh, managed to copy a lot of Harrison Ford's mannerisms and body language and I think that I really don't think that anyone would have had a problem with Phoenix as Indiana Jones. Uh, I kind of wonder if Phoenix would have been interested in something like that, but hey, I guess we'll never know. Bruce Wayne. And what do you do for a living? <laughs> Lieutenant, is there a six-foot bat in Gotham City? Nice outfit. You look fine. I didn't ask. I have given a name to my pain. What are you? I'm Batman. Where does he get those wonderful toys? My life is really complex. Winged freak terrorizes. Wait till they get a load of me. If you've ever seen An Evening with Kevin Smith, at one point, he talks about his feelings about Tim Burton's first stab at Batman in 1989 and points out the aggressive marketing campaign that came with it, and he's not joking. During you know one summer afternoon, for example, I saw the same TV spot on every commercial break while I was watching one particular channel. There was posters everywhere, there were toys everywhere, and... The movie's treatment of Batman was darker, more gothic, and not just the campy tone of the 60s TV series, although I grew up watching and enjoying that. And if you weren't reading the comics and all you knew was the TV show, your your knowledge of Batman was limited. This changed everything. It's, It's a bit of a landmark for the comic book movie genre as much as the first Superman films were. Technically and honestly, I, I didn't see this in the theater. Uh, but I came really close one time. One Saturday afternoon, my mother and siblings and I were shopping in Batesville's downtown section, and at one point, there was an opportunity for myself and maybe my brother and sister to go see a showing of Batman at the Melba Theater. I was told by the person at the box office that 
uh, some 10 or 15 minutes had already passed by, and I kind of felt that, no, I kind of want to see this thing from the beginning, and, you know, maybe there's some good trailers as well. So I declined. Truth be told, the the real reason that I declined was because I was worried that the film could possibly be gory at times. So here we go again. Uh, Why would I think that? Well... Previously, I had bought some of the film's trading cards earlier in the year. Uh, Tops made them, I believe. And on one of them, there was a description of a scene in the movie where the Joker kills someone by launching a like this pen, like this quill pen, into someone's neck. And I've established that earlier that I wasn't a gore hound back then, and intense violent moments didn't sit well with me. And when I eventually saw the movie, to my surprise, it was bloodless, and I didn't feel that much for the victim, who was a gangster. So, to the person who wrote that description on the card, thanks a lot, jerk, for scaring me away. So, I had to settle for home video, but the way that it reached me was, I think, so freaking cool. One night, my uh, paternal grandmother paid a visit to the house, as she usually did, And near the end of her visit, she uh, stated to me and my siblings that she had a present for us. And that I had to guess what it was. And uh, she just did her best take on the intro to the uh, 60s TV show. Like, na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. And it started to dawn on us. Holy crap, it's Batman. And she just produced the VHS copy, like, right there out of her purse. Like it was some kind of a magic trick. And, hey, I thought it was magical. I was thrilled. And uh, the movie itself, I I loved it back then, and I didn't know much about the lore, so I wasn't really all that offended by, you know, having the Joker kill Batman's parents instead of Joe Chill, and, uh, you know, Alfred bringing Vicky Vale into the Batcave was really lame to me back then. I never felt that uh, Kim Basinger and uh, Michael Keaton had any chemistry, but... um, you know, and also not to mention Robert Wool was annoying as ever. However, you got Danny Elfman's score. You got this crazy, memorable production design. You got this awesome-looking Batmobile. Uh, Keaton's performance at mo- more as Bruce Wayne and not so much Batman. And the decision to not make this an origin story. And Jack Nicholson was fun to watch, but I felt like I kept seeing the actor's persona rather than an actor disappearing in the role. But, hey, it still works. It's still fun to watch. And so, now I've uh, come to the end of this solo episode. Uh, I hope that these stories have been entertaining. I hope maybe... uh, Maybe you uh, send me some feedback. Maybe you've seen these films. Maybe you've had uh, some similar experiences to uh, seeing some blockbuster movies, and maybe you'd like to share them with me if you want to. You can always send me an email. Uh, either you can just you know type an email or even record a uh, some voicemail and send it to pastinpendingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can always hit me up at Twitter on uh, avidacrojam. And uh, as I said before, I'm planning to do another solo episode, this one focusing on horror movies. And uh, I do want to do another episode with a guest, but uh, it's getting really hard to 
schedule a meet with someone's and it just seems like the people that I had uh, in waiting just don't seem to be available anymore so if you would if you want to be a guest on this uh, podcast please send me a notice let me know and I'll try and work something out just as long as you have Skype we'll be just fine so uh, anyway with all that out of the way I want to thank you for your listening, for your support, and for any feedback you can send my way. This has been the Past in Pending Podcast, and as always, you cannot appreciate what you have now without respecting and admiring what came before. Hello. Gotham Corner Store? Yes, we seem to be down to our last diet cook. A gentleman is on his way to pick some up. Just look for a black car. No, this black car will be rather difficult to miss. And by the way, the gentleman is usually in quite a rush. Just for the taste of it.